This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to The Murder Lab, where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Today, I will be talking about stranglers. So I will compare a few stranglers. There are a lot of them out there, but I'm just going to discuss four today. There will be a second part coming up, so stay tuned for that. But first, you should pay attention to Murder Lab social media. Make sure you keep an eye out at MurderLabMedia.com as well as Facebook and Instagram for all kinds of updates. We do have some things coming up soon. Igor and I will be going to visit CrimeCon in Austin, Texas in just about two weeks. It is crazy that it's come. It was supposed to be last year, but we all know how last year went, so it was pushed back. So make sure you check out CrimeCon.com. I got an email from them that said that they do still have tickets. And if you can't go there, they do have virtual tickets available as well. So make sure you check that out. There will be all kinds of people there. There'll be different kinds of people speaking. And then there'll be lots of different true crime podcasts. So I'm excited. It's my first time there. We will actually be doing an episode recapping it and our experience experience there and everything. So make sure that you like and subscribe and share and all that stuff. But it's important to subscribe because then you'll know what is coming up. Speaking of what is coming up, so we have part one of The Stranglers. Next week, Igor will discuss local killers. Then we'll have a special about John Reginald Christie and the book Death in the Air, which is part of the Strangler series. Then we will be discussing our experience at CrimeCon. I will do an episode about local serial killers. And then we'll have the second part of The Stranglers. I will be covering about eight people, I think total, maybe nine, in The Stranglers. There are a lot more, but we're just going to focus on those for now. And then we'll throw in some other goodies, as you know we like to do. Now let's jump on into it. The serial killers I'm going to discuss today already have one thing in common. I had them in my index of serial killers, so I've got this spreadsheet of just so many serial killers. So I can't possibly remember every single name. But I decided since I knew I was going to do a Strangler series, I looked through some of my favorite podcasts to see what they covered. Serial Killers, the podcast by Parcast, had several series on serial killers. So the four serial killers that I'm talking about today, I was reminded of them because of the podcast Serial Killers. So I highly recommend to go and listen to those episodes because they are super in-depth and you can always have fun hearing them say, now Vanessa is not a trained psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the episode. Thanks, Greg. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time. I have a link to them on my website, murderlabmedia.com, because they do have lots of good information in there. First up, we have Timothy Wilson Spencer in Richmond, Virginia. He had four or five victims. Apparently, the first one was killed in 1984, but someone else was convicted of it, and the rest happened in 1987. His father was absent throughout his childhood, and his mom worked like 12 hours a day. She would leave him and his brother, younger brother Travis, home alone frequently, which was unfortunately a necessity. He was a troubled child. Apparently, he was bad in school, which included defecating and urinating in the schoolyard. He was also involved in petty theft and animal cruelty. At nine years old, he apparently set fire to the boys' bathroom at school. 
So that's uh, those aren't bad signs. Eventually, he started to break into homes to, to steal their jewelry to sell. His poor mom that was working her fingers to the bone to save up money for her kids for them to survive and, you know, have a future. They all knew where her money stash was. So he stole $1,500 from her. He denied it. But no one believed him because he was the only one home and he was a troublemaker. So she caught the cops on him and he was sent to juvie. And they thought that would set him straight. But unfortunately, he just kept stealing going to juvie and getting angrier and angrier. Apparently, though, people found him friendly when he was older. I don't know. It's always interesting when you're taking notes and they're talking about they do all these things. And you're like, oh, but people liked him. And then the next thing is he rapes a woman. That's, uh, that's how, unfortunately, it tends to go in these cases. He watched a 23-year-old girl making a phone call. He pulled his T-shirt over his head. He had cut eye holes in it, which it's a terrible, terrible thing that he does. But just the thought of him just pulling a T-shirt over his head with holes cut in it. And I can't help but picture, like, the top of the shirt's kind of flapping. And maybe the arms, like, I don't know, if it was long sleeve, it would be dangling. It looks comical to me. Like, I just picture him looking ridiculous. Which makes me feel better, because then I can laugh instead of focusing on the terrible things that he does when he has that t-shirt over his head. He covers his face, he pulls a knife on her, orders into the car, has her drive someplace, forces her into the woods, and rapes her. He told her to stay there, and he left. She reported him, but she didn't see his face. Then he robbed a 23-year-old at home and raped her. He was still masked. He tried two more times to rape and steal, but they got away. 1983, he forced a 22-year-old girl in a car at knife point again, took to a wooded area. He covered her eyes with duct tape and raped her. He found her hands behind her back, put her in a trunk. She starts to smell fire. Thank God the trunk came open. He had caught the back seat on fire. So thank God she was able to get out and she was safe. He attacked numerous women. Some of them got away. His proclivity was to approach them at their cars or he would just break into homes. His face were always covered and so were his hands. He would duct tape them and rob them. I mentioned his little brother, Travis. That poor poor kid. His brother would constantly try to scare him. Travis would think that he was home alone and when he got relaxed all of a sudden Tim would jump out and scare him to the point and it's not just like he'd wait 10 minutes until you know he got Travis got settled into watching tv and he'd jump out behind the couch. He would wait for hours until Travis thought that he was home alone hours so you would think after hours anybody would give up on trying to scare someone after hours not timothy spencer he would wait for hours and then jump out and scare him there was one time he even wore a stocking on his face then he tied travis's hands together with the stocking put a sock in his mouth and threw him in a closet it took travis four hours to escape I have two sisters. One of them was always nice to me. The other one liked to terrorize me when I was a kid. And I have a scar on my knee from when she threw me into a huge ass wicker hamper. But she never jumped out at me with a stocking in her face, tied me up and threw me in a closet where it took me four hours to escape. She had her limits. So I just know how it sucked having a sister that picked on you, but I cannot imagine if she would have made it a goal in her life to wait for hours just to scare me. This poor boy. I mean, can you imagine, like, I, he probably was afraid to take a shit. He probably was in the bathroom, and Tim would jump in and scare him. Poor Travis. Well, of course, uh, when Travis was like, what the fuck? Spencer was like, oh, I was just playing around. 
So, you know, that's a satisfactory excuse. After that, unsurprisingly, Travis starts keeping an eye on his brother, and he noticed that his brother would go out at late at night, and when he came home, he would obsessively scrub his shoes in the bathroom sink. When he asked his brother about it, as Tim, of course, like anything, is just like, eh, it's nothing. I just want to be clean. It's basically like, just move forward. Just go ahead. Don't worry about it. In 1984, 32-year-old lawyer Carol Ham was caught at her home by Spencer. He bound her hands with a cord from her blinds and raped her, then killed her, and she was found in the garage. He didn't get caught, so of course he's not going to be as careful because he's like, eh, you know, I wasn't caught for this murder, and I have not been caught for any of these numerous rapes that I've done, except he gets caught for burglary, so he gets thrown in jail. He's released to a halfway house. Of course, when he's able to check out and leave the halfway house during the day he could leave, as long as he came back, well, what he would do is naturally stalk people at the mall. He found Debbie Davis, age 35, followed her home, stole a rocking chair from the neighbor's porch, pulled it over towards Debbie's home, and just sat in the rocking chair and waited for her to come home. When she comes home, he manages to bind her with a bootlace, put, put a sock around her throat with a garrote, and, of course, raped her, strangled her, left her naked in bed in her apartment. He left her there, but he stole her car. Now, he couldn't drive a stick, so <laughs> he's trying to drive the stick, but he's worried that it's making a lot of noise because, you know, he's just, like, ruining the gears, and it's noisy when you do it wrong. So he ditches the car because killed someone. Kind of important to stay incognito. He left the car running three blocks away and ran. If you want to remain on the down low, it's probably not a great idea to leave a running car three blocks away from where you killed someone. And unsurprisingly, people found it. <laughs> and they traced it back to her and she was found. So they found her much sooner than, which is good for us, but is bad for him. Although he's not caught yet. Two weeks later, Dr. Susan Hellams, a neurosurgeon who's 32 years old, she would leave her upstairs window open for her cat. He scaled a fence to get in. Now, keep in mind, he would stalk. He would keep an eye on things and try to figure out the best time to do things and, you know, look for habits like that. And unfortunately, she probably thought, well, who's going to scale the fucking fence to get in my window? I mean, it's upstairs. Timothy Spencer would. And he did. He would do the thing where he would strangle her while he's raping her and, like, bring her to the point of passing out and then bring her back to. And he would do that for hours. The thing that really gets me on this one, it's so frustrating. Her husband had been out of town. He got home from his trip while Spencer is upstairs raping his wife. The husband hears a stirring, but he just figures his wife, like, heard him come home and she's getting up or whatever or, you know, tossing and turning. So he's like, well, I'll take a shower and I won't bother her. Spencer strangles her to death and is able to leave while the husband's in the shower. I can't begin to imagine how the husband dealt with that. I can't even begin to think about how I could handle knowing that. So the husband gets out of the shower, finds her gagged, par partly clothed, and strangled in the bedroom wardrobe. He had just thrown her in the wardrobe. She had two belts around her neck. At this point, apparently, cops tended to think that serial killers were only white people, and that affected their search. In one of my resources, it said that they blamed the FBI profiling because they tended to focus on white people. But I am not sure how that's a thing. I've read... 
Mindhunter by John Douglas. And I've read several other things. And they're always very clear on saying that usually people will not cross their racial lines. They're clear that it's not just white people. White people tend to kill white people. It's unusual. I mean, it happens when it comes to serial killers. But it would be like African-Americans kill African-Americans and... I don't know, Hispanics kill Hispanics. Like, it's, it actually tends to stay within your racial lines most of the time. Oh, like I said, there's always some exceptions. So I think they're being a little hard on the FBI, but maybe at this point in time, at that point in FBI profiling, maybe they hadn't evolved to that point yet. So I don't know. He laid low for a bit, but then November 22nd, he saw 15-year-old Diane Cho at the mall. She actually saw him seeing her, pointed out to her friends... But she didn't want to, she didn't want to scare her parents because she wanted to be able to go out and hang out with her friends. And they were like, oh, doubt it's going to be a big deal. She would leave her bedroom window open at night. He got in and while her parents were asleep, he assaulted her, killed her. And for some reason, no one knows why, he painted on her thigh in nail polish a figure eight. Or it could have been the, the infinity symbol. They're not sure. But it basically looked like the figure eight. He covered her with a sheet. And then at that point, the cops tied the things together and they realized that they had, they had started calling him the Southside Strangler. So they realized that they had another victim. Next, he broke into 44-year-old Sue Tucker's house. He raped her, ransacked the house, and killed her. So we mentioned that Carolyn Ham had, someone else had been convicted of her murder. So the cop was like, "Um, if these murders are tied and that guy's in jail... The real killer's out there. They realize we probably got an innocent man in there, and we need to find the real guy. Someone actually called Sue's husband and asked where she was, and then kind of said to themselves, oh, that's right, she's dead. And then they left and hung up. It was never proven that this was Spencer that called, but if it was, it wouldn't necessarily be unusual because sometimes serial killers like to get that extra, <clears throat> like twist the knife extra by doing it that, that way. Albert Fish wrote to the mother of one of his victims to really just, uh, just trying to get every last drop out of it that they can. There was a woman who was found naked, bound, strangled, and bludgeoned with a claw hammer in her apartment... And the same day, they found 29-year-old Michael St. Hilaire hanging from a pipe. Now, she was not raped, and since that guy killed himself the same day, they decided that he was a copycat and that this specific victim was not part of the series. But that just goes to show when there's all kinds of crazy shit going on, it's hard to know what to tie together and what not to tie together. In the book Journey into Darkness, speaking of John Douglas, there is a section where he talks about this case specifically, and he mentioned that Spencer would wear socks over his hands. He had a flashlight and a folding knife. There was a cop who remembered this kid who was always in trouble in that same area. And he's racking his brain. He's like, I, what was that kid's name? I just have a feeling that, that this has some, he has something to do with it. Finally remembers the guy's name, and it was Spencer. They look into what Spencer's doing, and they realize... He was released to a halfway house near all of the rapes, and his family also lived near some of the rapes. So they finally connected him to the murders. They found a figure eight drawn under his mattress, which matched the one on Diane's thigh. He was arrested January 29, 1988. He wouldn't talk, but he did give a blood sample. Genetic testing attached him to Tucker, Davis, Helms, and Ham murders. This was one of the earliest cases of DNA to be used in a trial. 
So he just left semen everywhere because, you know, DNA wasn't really a thing. It was brand new. You know, the technology was really coming out. So people weren't really, it wasn't in the shows and shit the way that it is now. So we didn't think anything about it because he's like, well, they're not going to do anything with my semen. So I'm just going to leave it. But they were able to actually connect him with semen. They talked to his girlfriend. She said he tried to get her to lie about like his alibis. And he also tried to get his brother to lie too. He was found guilty. He got the electric chair April 27th, 1994. He was the first sent to death from DNA. The person who had gotten convicted of murdering Carolyn Ham was released. He was known as the Southside Slayer, the Southside Rapist, the Southside Strangler, and the Masked Rapist. Next up, we have Walter E. Ellis. He was active in Milwaukee, Wisconsin from 1986 to 2007 and had seven victims. His family was from Mississippi, but they moved to Milwaukee. He was known as an angry boy, but a calm adult. At a point, he sold shoes out of his car. He had trouble with the law since he was 14. I read in one place that he tried to become a pimp in 1980 and was arrested. From 1981 to 1998, he was arrested 12 times, but the charges were frequently dropped. On October 10th, 1986, 31-year-old sex worker Deborah Harris was found strangled in the Milwaukee River. One day later, 19-year-old sex worker Tanya Miller was found strangled between a garage and a house. He ended up going to prison for theft. Those murders could not be traced back to anybody. He wound up going to prison for theft and then released to a halfway house. He bribed this dude named Carl for a day pass. And it's a thing where, like, basically, Carl just wouldn't record that he was out, so he could kind of come and go and do whatever he wanted. And I think we know what he wanted to do. On November 28, 1992, sex worker Irene Smith was strangled, stabbed in the neck, and killed. She was found in a trash bin in an alley. He decided that he was tired of bribing Carl or something, so he just fucking left without permission. He was arrested two days later. So instead of getting into major trouble, he just got in a little bit of trouble because he ratted on Carl. His probation was finally lifted in 1993. So then in 1994, 32-year-old sex worker Karen Kilpatrick was found strangled and left in a dumpster behind his mom's home and one block from where Eileen had been dumped. Little girls found her. So I think there was another case. I can't remember exactly which one it was. But there was a case where some school kids, I believe, found a corpse like behind a Burger King. So those kids grew up fast and they will never take out the garbage with good reason. April 24th, 1995, 28-year-old Florence McCormick was found strangled with a clothesline in the basement of a vacant home. June 27th, 1995, 37-year-old Sheila Ferrier was found strangled in an empty house. On August 30th, 1995, Jessica Payne was found behind an empty house with her throat slashed. She was under a mattress in the vacant house, but she didn't really fit the pattern because her throat was slit and she was white and not a sex worker. So the cops figured she was killed by someone else. So they convicted uh, they convicted Shantae Ott of her murder. He did wind up getting released later. On June 20th, 1997... 41-year-old sex worker Joyce Mims was found strangled in a vacant house near Ellis's mom's house. So at one point, he had stabbed his girlfriend with a screwdriver and tried strangling her, but she lived. Those charges were dropped. Well, in 1998, he had a different girlfriend, and 
He beat her on the head with a hammer. This time the charges stuck and he was in jail. 2001, there was a new policy where inmates had to give their DNA. So this is a case where DNA is becoming this big thing. So they were requiring inmates to provide some. Well, they didn't have any pictures on file, so he got another inmate to give his DNA for him. There was a lab tech that noticed the same DNA for two people, but somehow it never got back to the prison. Side note, there was a state audit after his arrest that discovered 17,699 offender samples were missing from the database. So hopefully they got that fixed. So now we jump forward to April 27th, 2007, Utherium Stokes, age 28, was found strangled in a vacant house. There was pepper spray near her covered in blood. It matched the killer's blood that was on seven victims, but was not in the database. They finally were able to connect Ellis, got a search warrant, and he ran. They found him at a hotel. He was arrested in September 5th, 2009, when he was 49 years old. He was not charged with the Payne and Kilpatrick murders. Both men who were convicted of murders he did were released, so that's good. He represented himself in trial, but he pled no contest, which basically means he'll get punished, but he's not admitting that he's guilty. And he has he remained silent. He did get life, and he died of natural causes in jail in December 1st, 2013. He was known as the Northside Strangler, or the Milwaukee Northside Strangler. Here's a quick little rant. I've mentioned before the World Encyclopedia of Serial Killers by Susan Hall. And I do love how there are lots and lots of serial killers in her four volumes. What I don't love is the way she alphabetized it. She doesn't do it by their last names. She does it by their fucking nicknames. So instead of being under E for Ellis, he's under M for Milwaukee, Northside Strangler. And like I've said before, I don't have all 5 billion serial killers nicknames memorized. So I don't just fucking know that Ellis is going to be under M for Milwaukee Northside Strangler unless I fucking Google him first. So if I don't know shit about it and I'm trying to learn, then I can't just go to E in her four fucking volumes. I have to search. Now, the good thing is that I have been... I've become prepared for this. And in that spreadsheet of serial killers, I I put what books they're in. So normally I don't necessarily put a page number because a lot of them are in an index or it's alphabetical, so it's obvious. But with hers, I put the page number. So I just took some fucking time out of my life as if I'm not busy enough. And I just put what page number they are on. So that's the end of my rant. And again, I don't want to discourage you from her books because it is filled with some good information. It's since it's it just came out within the past year or so. Like some like literally I think just came out the beginning of this year. So they they have some people in there that haven't been in other stuff because they're newer. So she can put put fresher information in there. So I am grateful for the books. I just wish they would have been alphabetized differently. Now let's talk about Maury Travis. He's from Ferguson, Missouri was active between 2000 and 2002. He murdered two cops knew of 10 to 12. He claimed he was had 17 and some people think there were 20 total. I don't know. This was one of those where numbers were just all over the place. So it's difficult to pinpoint how many, but you know how it can be with serial killers. Again, he was a uh, strangly 
and like to use ligatures like some of these others. Unlike the previous two, or maybe they were angry kids or had some troubled childhoods, his background seemed to be normal. People thought, thought he was polite, helpful, and quiet. His parents did get divorced, his mom remarried, and then divorced him, but there's not really a record of that impacting him. His classmates didn't remember him. And when they looked at his yearbooks, he's not even identified in yearbook pictures. So he has a case of the Brudos. Jerry Brudos people, when they went back to his like high school or, you know, talked to his old classmates, nobody really remembered him. He spent two years in the Army Reserves as a medical and dental assistant. He had jobs with trucking companies and he volunteered in a nursing home. I only saw that detail in one place, so I'm not sure 100% how accurate that is, but that was put out there. So possibly he volunteered in a nursing home. What is agreed upon is that in college, in 87 and 88, he developed a cocaine addiction and began to rob shoe stores. He claimed he used a plastic toy gun to steal the money, but the fake gun still had real robberies, so he was really arrested and convicted. He served five years and was released in 1994. He became suicidal in jail. They were keeping an item so he was not able to kill himself. But as a suicidal in jail and he's, as he was, he was back in jail at age 32, but he served only one year. He bought a house in Minnesota and was a waiter. At age 35, he was arrested for drug possession. He was only served four months and was released in 2001. Coincidentally, from May to October 2001, women's bodies began to appear that had been tortured and strangled and were mostly sex workers. Some of these women were Teresa Wilson, age 36, Verona Thompson, age 36, Yvonne Cruz, 50, Brenda Beasley, 33, Betty James, 46, and Mary Shields, 61. He left semen on the bodies of two people, but there were no matches in the system. Then the killing stopped. And again, there's a random note where he had girlfriends and people liked him. So as some serial killers like to do, they like to play with the media. They like to try to get more attention. There was a newspaper article about one of his victims. So he sent an anonymous letter with a map of another body to that newspaper. They found a skull there and more of a body. So that was obviously really was a serial killer. And he was telling them where this victim was to taunt them. So this was in 2000. So Internet stuff was was still pretty early on. And people didn't really think about the things you do online can be traced. So he hadn't thought anything about it. Well, cops realized that the map, the map came from Expedia. So they start researching online and they start investigating. And only one person had searched that area. That person was Maury Travis. How they knew is because the map, the, when he downloaded the map from the internet, his IP address was stored. And that IP address was ably traced back to him. So that's how he was found. When they showed up, he was unfazed. The police uncovered that he had told someone that East St. Louis was a good place to dump things because there's not many police around. And at least four of his suspected victims were found there. He had talked to a friend's girlfriend that worked for local news and asked if they had done a story on prostitutes getting killed. He said he had friends who knew about bodies being dumped. She asked her boss, but no one could find information on it. Three months later, police announced that a, that a serial killer may be killing prostitutes. And then when they found out it was him, then everything, you know, how it, it all like lines up suddenly like, oh, shit, he was basically telling me he was a serial killer. But, you know, who knows? You never know. While he was being interviewed at home, he didn't like them touching his cat and he kept trying to redirect their questioning. 
He never confessed anything. He wouldn't say anything like he had done anything either way. He finally said that he'd give them what they want. They would, he would take them to the bodies. But then he changed his mind and said, just take me to jail. He was arrested on June 7, 2002, when he was 36 years old. And in subsequent interviews, they said he seemed fond only of his mother and that he didn't seem to feel any kind of emotions about anyone else or any of the victims. As is often seen when researching such things, it is hard to know what is 100% true, what is most likely pretty accurate, and what might be pulled out of someone's ass. So this is a case like that where I searched in several different places, and I found some details in, in some places that weren't in others, and you know how that goes. Supposedly, there were blood spatters found through his home and belts and ligatures smeared with blood. In one of the earliest things that I read, it said that he planned to build a torture chamber, but in a couple other thing, in a few other things, they actually say that they discover a torture chamber in his basement, where he had torture instruments, a stun gun, newspaper clippings of some of his crimes, and now this part is mentioned in, in pretty much everywhere. They found a secret wall filled with videotapes. On these tapes, there are it shows torture, rape. And murder. Some of the women on the videos were forced to say their names, and it, it it's another thing where they'll say two remain unidentified. One's only one woman was identified, so I'm not 100% sure how many women there were, how many were definitely identified, how many weren't. One place says that two remain unidentified because they may have used a, a street name instead. So many of the women were bound with ropes or handcuffs. In one video, he appeared. He appears to use a belt to strangle or break someone's neck. On one video labeled Wedding Day, he wrapped a belt around a woman's neck and he says, this is my first kill. That woman was never found or identified. And the rest of the tape he uses to show rape, torture, and murder. His MO tended to be he would bind them with ropes, handcuffs, cover their mouths with tape, keep them in the basement for days taped to a beam and would sexually assault them, use a stun gun, strangle them, and verbally taunt them. And then there's another thing that says only one woman in tapes were ID'd, Betty James. And they found her, but her killing, her murder was not shown on the tapes. So now I'm going to go through the list, the timeline, and his known and possible victims. July 31st, 2000, Mary Shields, age 61, is found and might be one of his victims. April 1st, 2001, Alyssa Greenwade, age 34, her body's body was found, and she seems to be definitely one of his victims. April 4th, 2001, an unidentified woman was who's 44 years old was found near death, but she wasn't able to ID the, the attacker, and he is a suspect. May 15th, 2001, Teresa Wilson, 36, was found. He, was, he is a suspect. May 23rd, 2001, Betty James, 46, she was in the tape, and they were able to match a tire track on her leg to his car. June 29th, 2001, Verona Thompson, 36, was found. He's a suspect. August 25th, 2001, Yvonne Curas, 50, his DNA in semen was found on her. October 8th, 2001, Brenda Beasley, 33, his DNA in semen was found on her. Then we have four women who are unidentified skeletons that they found that he is a suspect. One was the one that was shown on the map. We do not have any more information directly from him because he hanged himself in his cell before the trial. It's said that he had a pillowcase over his head 
and his hands were tied behind his back in a very odd suicide. But he had written a suicide note, so they ruled it a suicide. His friends thought it was suspicious. The thing is, he was suicidal. I mentioned that he talked about being suicidal in jail before, and he had said when he got arrested, hey, I'm not going to jail again. So I think it's likely it was a suicide. I don't really understand how the hands were tied behind his back and he did it, but I'm sure there are all kinds of ways to do things that I'm not aware of. It does sound suspicious, though, so I don't know. The bottom line is he's dead, and it sucks because we don't know anything about why he did it or the details. An interesting tidbit, a woman was watching something on TV, a documentary on TV or a TV special, and she found out she was living in the house that he had lived where 16 or 17 women could have been raped, tortured, and killed in her house. So when she saw, I mean, she saw rooms of her house being shown, you know, and she's like, my kid plays on the pole in the basement, and apparently that's the pole that women were tied to and got abused. So she contacts the landlord and was like, you didn't fucking tell me anything about this, and I need out. I can't live in this house. I can't live where people were killed and tortured. And the person... The landlady was like, well, sucks to be you. Turns out it was his mom. His mom owned the house and was renting it out. And she did not want to let the woman out of her lease. Well, finally, the law got involved in things and the poor woman was finally allowed to back out and move. That's a fun anecdote she has now. The only nickname I found for him was the Video Strangler. The last serial killer we will be covering in this episode is Stephen Gerald James Wright. And I have to admit, I like that there are two middle names. We're used to hearing one with serial killers, but he's got two. The thing is, he's usually referred to as Steve Wright, which threw me off at first because, you know, the comedian Stephen Wright. It's not the same guy. He was active in Ipswich, Suffolk, England, October to December 2006 and had five victims. His mom left when he was either six or eight, Their parents ended up getting divorced. His dad was abusive and mom left. She couldn't get custody of them, so they had to stay with the dad. Wright joined the Merchant Navy as a chef. He married Angela O'Donovan in 1978. They had a child named Michael. 1987, they got separated and then divorced. He became a steward on the QE2. He was a bartender and then he drove trucks and forklifts. At this time period, he started visiting sex workers. 1987, he married Diane Castle, and in September of 1988, he became landlord of a pub. In 1989, he got involved with Sarah Whiteley. They had a daughter together in 1992. He got heavily into gambling, and he was fired from the pub for heavy drinking and gambling. One reference said that he had started cross-dressing and was seen around in a leather skirt, high heels, and a blonde wig. So that's just, that was the only place I really saw it mentioned it really wasn't made a big deal of, which is good because if that's just how he liked to hang out, that's fine because it doesn't seem to be affiliated with any of the murders that he did. In 2001, he was convicted of stealing money and he continued to accrue huge gambling debts to the point where he went bankrupt. He tried to kill himself two times. In the 1990s, he tried to gas himself with carbon monoxide, but he failed. And then in 2000, he OD'd on pills but lived. In 2001, he met met Pamela Wright, which is no relation, and I imagine it's probably weird to get involved with someone with the same last name. In 2004, she started to work nights, 
So that was a big problem in their relationship because they didn't see each other very much. And their sex life basically stopped. So he started going to sex workers again. In 2006, some sex workers wound up dead. Tanya Nicole, age 19, was found... She was killed October 30th, but she was found December 8th in the river. The autopsy was inconclusive for the cause of death and no indication of sexual assault. Gemma Adams, age 25, disappeared November 15th, 2006. Her body was found in a river, naked December 2nd. No indication of sexual assault. She was a sex worker. Annalee Alderton, 24, went missing on December 3rd. Her body was found seven days later in the woods. Her cause of death was asphyxiation. Unfortunately, she was three months pregnant. She was found naked, and this time he had posed her in the crucifix position, which was different, but it was still, he still seemed to fit the pattern. He was just changing it up a little. Annette Nichols, 29, went missing on December 8th. She was found naked December 12th, also posed in a crucifix position. No sexual assault. The cause of death was not clear, but they were able to ascertain she did have some kind of disruption of breathing. Paula Clonell, age 24, went missing December 10th. Her body was found two days later, the same day that the body of Nichols was found. Clonell was also naked, and the autopsy showed her throat was compressed, which caused death. No sexual assault. With all of these murders, they start to... Somehow they get in their minds, the places that these are happening are their cameras around. So they discover that there were CCTV footage from these places. So they checked from the places that these women disappeared. They noticed a specific vehicle each time. They traced the license plate to Wright, and they found his DNA on three of the victims. He was arrested December 19, 2006, when he's 48 years old. He wouldn't answer questions. He would not talk about it at all. His DNA linked him to five murders, including some blood spatter on his jacket that matched two women. So five total murders he was charged for, and he was charged as guilty and got life. He was known as the Suffolk Strangler or the Ipswich Ripper. Now I'll do a little comparing, as you know I like to do. As I was looking through these, I randomly, if you've listened to past episodes, then you will know that when I randomly choose a group of serial killers... It's always interesting to see the patterns that emerge and the differences that emerge. So in this case, I noticed that with Travis and Wright, their parents had been divorced. Spencer and Ellis were both known as bad or angry children. Spencer, Ellis, and Travis all had law trouble throughout their life. Spencer and Travis raped women. Spencer and Ellis, they were both in a halfway house when they committed some of the crimes. And Spencer and Ellis both had someone else convicted of at least one or two of their crimes. Ellis, Travis, and Wright all killed sex workers. Ellis and Travis both kept silent, so they didn't confess anything, they didn't say anything. Travis and Wright were both in the military, and they both were suicidal. Another thing I noticed is that Ellis sold shoes out of his car, and Travis robbed shoe stores. So there's a a slight shoe connection there. The most interesting thing is that all four of these are more current, so technology is more involved with each each of them, especially with DNA. So Spencer was the first person put to death from being convicted on a DNA match. Ellis was involved where the DNA policy came into place when Ellis was in jail and was ultimately how he was found out, even though he tried to subvert the authorities by having someone else give their DNA instead of his. They found him. They got him. Wright was first. 
they use the camera technology, security cameras, to find him. And then DNA ended up convicting him. Now, Travis wasn't really, they didn't mention much about DNA, but they found him through the internet. So they were able to use IP address his IP address to find him. So we see how these, the technology and advancements in research helped get all four of these men put behind bars. The ages, I thought it was interesting that Wright was 48, Ellis was 49, Travis was 36 when they were caught, but Spencer was 26. So it was interesting to see the that three of them were kind of closer in the same, kind of closer in age, and then Spencer was younger. The ages of their victims, Wright killed women between 19 and 29, Travis between 33 and age 61, Ellis ages 16 to 41, and Spencer ages 15 to 44. So what's interesting about these age ranges is that Wright stayed between like 20 and 30, but Ellis and Spencer were, were between like 15 and 40. And Travis was between 30 and 60. So it, it's interesting to see how the three, though, they do tend to skew a little younger. But Travis was like, I like him a little bit older. The time periods, Spencer and Ellis were active at the same time. Ellis was also active during, during Travis and Wright. So Ellis was active during all of them. But Travis was caught before Wright started killing. So Wright and Travis were not killing at the same time. I think it's interesting to see what serial killers were active at the same time. The number of victims, Spencer was between four and five, Wright was five, Ellis was seven, and then we have Travis, which was two or 20. <laughs> so if we go with the low end, these serial killers actually didn't kill very many people, which is good, unless Travis really did kill 20 people, and that makes him the biggest asshole. As far as sentencing, usually you'll find some kind of, at least two of them will wind up the same way. But in this case, we have Spencer was got the electric chair, Ellis died of natural death, Travis committed suicide, and then Wright got life. I always like to see how, as I'm reading about everything, how things start to line up and things that start to connect and similarities see between them. And what's particularly interesting to me is when I read one of them was suicidal and then the next one I read about happened to actually commit suicide. Or you read about one was silent and the next one you read about he was silent. So it's interesting to see just how this all like pans out and comes together. And again, the things that don't come together like... um. Spencer didn't kill sex workers, so it's interesting to see how it all pan lines up. Well, that's enough of that. We've heard enough about uh, strangling people for the night. Make sure to stay tuned for next week when Igor talks about local killers. Not serial killers, but just local, local crime. And then Reginald Christie and the Death is in the Air book. We'll do our Crime Con episode. I'll do local serial killers. And then there will be part two of The Stranglers. I'm going to give you a little bit of a break with The Stranglings. And I may talk about Soul, Rifkin, Baumeister, and Alcala. And if you don't know those names, I will tell you about them. And if you do know them, because at least the first two are pretty pretty well known. Especially if you're a Seinfeld fan, you'll know Joel, Joel Rifkin. So we will, um, you'll get to hear some stuff about them. Again, make sure to pay attention to the social media. We've got some stuff coming up. And I'm going to have some, I'm going to start having events that will be a mixed bag and a potpourri. And it'll smell good. Thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, 
as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. So he just left semen everywhere. 